theme. Elihu is still dealing with Job's bad thinking um, just concerning the idea that God is inactive. He's going to continue in the rest of this chapter, chapter 36, to show that God is very much at work. And then I have the remaining P's. I had intended in this chapter to give you four, but I only had time to give you two last week. So I'll give you the other two today. And so if, if you're there, great. If not, just turn over to Job 36. We're going to be looking at the, the last verses. Uh, we almost cut, the, I guess we cut the chapter almost directly in half, which is crazy. We're going to look at verses 17 to 33 and find these other examples of how God is at work when it doesn't seem like he's at work. Well, let's pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at that third P. Number three, Elihu's perception. Perception. We see this in verses 17 to 21. It's a big section. We'll deal with it verse by verse. Let's pick up at verse 17. This is the very next thing that Elihu tells Job as he's dealing with the subject of God's inactivity. He says this to Job, but you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. So stop there. This is the very next thing that he says after stringing together at least eight examples of God's activity. Now he's really starting to bring it home. He's really working to convict Job here. He's calling him out in verse 17, essentially. Elihu perceives that Job has developed a sour heart because of his travail and struggle, because of the impact of his not-so-great friends. He perceives, and it's really quite obvious, it is a perception, however, but he perceives that his, how to, his, his heart has gone sour, his, his spirit has become critical, and he's, he's basically telling the battered patriarch Job that he is full of the judgment on the wicked, and that he, of course, he backs it up with that you are seized by judgment and justice. This is his perception. This is where Job's at in his thinking. And really what this was, was Elihu's way of telling Job that, you know, you're now responding to your situation. The wicked would respond to a situation like this. In other words, you're not, you're not responding to your suffering and to the impact of your friends, to your circumstances, to everything that's happening to you. You are no longer responding to it as a Christian or believers should respond to it. You're acting like the wicked. This is essentially what he's saying. Because it's the wicked that make false judgments and false statements about God, isn't it? The wicked are always speaking ill of God and always slamming God for things. If they're acknowledging God at all, it's usually never positive. And he's essentially saying... You're acting like the wicked toward God now because you're charging him with being inactive. You're charging him with being uncaring. You're charging him with being absent. You're charging him with, with really not having the power that he had before. And you're doing all this through your complaining. So essentially what he's saying is you're, you're just full of the judgments that wicked men make against God. That's what you are. That's what you've become it's the wicked that say the very things that Job has been implying through his speeches, right? God is nowhere to be found. God is silent. God is unjust. God is uncaring. And now God is inactive. These are the charges that wicked people make. And sadly, Job is now making them. 
The wicked are always charging God with wrongdoing. They literally blame, like I said, if they acknowledge God at all, his existence, they blame him for everything, every bad thing that happens in the world, every terrible thing, every calamity, every tsunami, every tornado, everything always goes, they always go against God on all these things. But when good things happen, they never give him glory for it, and they never give him praise for it. The sad fact is, is that, and I think that we would all be in the same boat, if not worse than Job, but the sad thing is, is that Job had become so embittered because of his circumstances, because of his suffering, because of of the, the impact of those three friends who kept hammering him over and over. When you put it all together, he had become just utterly embittered, and what he did was he began to parrot the wicked, to say what the wicked say about God. Elihu was saying in verse 17, Job, you sound like the wicked, full of judgments against God. But Elihu's profound, powerful, and convicting statement in verse 17. It has a dual meaning. It doesn't just mean this. It refers not only to the judgments that that Job was parroting against God, but to the judgment that had come upon Job for essentially doing this. So it's a twofold, you know, it's a twofold judgment. Job is spewing judgment against God, but he's also being impacted by the judgment of God for acting this way. This is what Elihu was also saying. Now, we must understand that Job's suffering, all the suffering and travail and everything he experienced, it was not intended to sour his heart. It was not intended to to twist his mind. It was not intended to lead him to parrot wicked judgments and statements against God. That is never God's intent in his child. When God allows or ordains things to happen to us, it's not so that we'll become embittered and eventually turn against the God who's sovereign over all this stuff. That was not the intent. That was not the goal. God is not in the business of inflicting harm, just inflicting harm for the sake of inflicting harm on his people so that his people will at some point turn against him. That's never God's purpose. That would be really, really bad parenting, right? Like you deliberately do something to harm your child and to get your child to hate you. What sense does that make? I do things by mistake that cause my children to hate me. I don't do it intentionally. And then when they're upset with me, I say, what happened? Well, you did this. Well, I'm an idiot. What do you want? (laughs) We don't do things to deliberately provoke our children and to cause them to think ill of us and these things. And and God is, is far more brilliant and holy and perfect than we are. He certainly does not aim for this in the sufferings and things that he allows to happen for his purposes. That's not at all his intent. Everything God does for his children, believe it or not, is done in love for their good and for his glory. Always, always. That's always his, his bigger meta-narrative you know, purpose over all the things that happen to us. It's always done in love, even when it doesn't seem like it. It's always done for our good. He will take the terrible things and somehow weave them together for our good, and then ultimately all of it will redound for his glory. That is the purpose always. The case with Job, his suffering was intended to expose his 
hidden weaknesses and sanctify him with the truth. You know, it, it's so often that, you know, we're, we're, we're just doing life and we're going through life and we kind of know how we are and we're, we kind of have an operating mode and we're doing what we're doing, but then it takes some kind of calamity to draw something out of us that we didn't realize was there. Amen? Right? Sometimes you don't know what's in you. You don't sense something ill, wicked, or wrong, or bad that's in you until you get squeezed enough for it to come out. Right? I've used this illustration with people in the past. I've used it in counseling sessions. And, you know, some people will say, well, you know, I've got this very, very difficult job, and there's a lot of pressure there and all these things, and I don't like who I'm becoming because of the job. You are who you are, you are what you are, and God is working through the job to expose you to something you didn't know about yourself. You're not becoming something, you are it, and haven't had any kind of catalyst or season or experience to squeeze you enough to draw it out of you to find out that you're really a meatball. You, 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 see, we always have an inflated view of ourselves. We always think more highly of ourselves than, 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 than we ought to, right? We, all, we have a bad anthropology. I, I know all men are bad, but I'm kind of good. That's our mentality. And then, and then we face some kind of a difficult situation, and we're under these pressures that we haven't felt for a long time or never have experienced, especially in the context of marriage. By the way, God will use marriage to expose just how dastardly you are. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty cool till I got married, and I'm like, ah, nobody should marry me. But it's kind of late, so you got to deal with it, honey. You get put into these situations, and then you, you start to respond to it. And we think that, well, look what I'm becoming. No, it's what you already were. You just didn't have any way to pull that out. And God is graciously exposing this about you through this situation. You know, your, your marriage hasn't made you a particular kind of person. It's exposed you for who you are. Your job isn't turning you into something. It's exposing what you are. Your friendships aren't, are not, aren't, you're not becoming something in particular in some kind of a friendship. You were that, and the friendship is revealing that. God is working through that to reveal that. You, you, you <laughs> driving around does not make you become something when people drive like morons. You already have road rage. It's just buried and hidden in there, and it takes that guy doing 15 miles an hour on McHenry to draw it out. Right? You are what you are, and God works through these things, different scenarios to reveal what you are. To leave you as you are? No, 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 no. To reveal, to lead you to repentance and confession, realizations, so that he can use his all-powerful grace to transform your life. Job does it. Job does it really. Job knows who he is, but there's things about him he had yet to discover until he got into this calamity. It's through the, the struggle and calamity and suffering that God is revealing to him that, you know what, you are a righteous man, but you're also a self-righteous man. You think you're better than other people. Job doesn't come to that conclusion without the calamity. Job had probably never spoken an ill word about God prior to his suffering. But when he gets knee-deep in suffering, his heart gets hardened, his spirit gets soured, and he starts saying dumb things about God. 
but he never gets there unless he's in, a, the, the, the catalyst is there. He doesn't get there unless he's in a scenario that pulls it out of him. And that's essentially what God is doing for him. He is revealing through all this suffering, revealing through this kind of a cataclysmic event. I mean, you, you lose your health, family, and wealth all in moments. Then you have friends come and badger you for a month. I mean, it, God was using all of this in Job's life as a teaching tool. Not to inflict harm, not to get him to say dumb things about God. It's a teaching tool. He uses suffering to teach his children. And this is Elihu's precise point down in verse 22. We'll get there. Now, Job's response to all of this, however, was not that of a humble student who's willing to learn, but of a sore, stubborn saint. There's the difference. I think it's funny. We... we, we we have, a, you know, we, we have a theory and a theology and we think that we would respond to situations in a certain way, yet we have not entered into those situations to find out actually how we would do it. And then once we enter into a situation, our theory is disproved of. I'm not responding to this the way I thought, the way I boasted about all these years. And what Job was essentially doing is he was trying to kick against the goads. Acts 26, 14, that really just kind of means he's just trying to Square up against God and stop the process or end the process. How does the process end for Job? The suffering ends. When you call on God to end your suffering, you're, what you're actually doing is trying to end the sanctification process. And at this point, you've got to realize God is sovereign. And he's going he's to transform you and keep using the tools that he uses. He's not going to end anything early for you if he has a goal at the end of it for you. And this is what Job is doing. He's trying to kick against the goads. Hence the reason why Elihu began the fifth section with that mic drop statement, God is mighty, right? Back in chapter 36, verse 5. Here's what Elihu was essentially saying at this point. Job, you're missing the point. You're letting your heart and mouth become filled with judgments against God instead of embracing your suffering as a teaching moment. Stop speaking judgments. Learn from your situation. And by the way, resistance is futile because God is mighty. He will accomplish His teaching purposes for you through this suffering. Then and only then will God bring you into that broad place of freedom and fatness. This is what He told Job in verse 16 of this very same chapter. You know, you're in a situation, it's not going to end until God is done teaching you what He needs to teach you. And then and only then will He bring you into a place of freedom. Only then will He deliver you. Verse 18 it's a, it's a warning here. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Stop there. Elihu perceives that Job is, is headed down an even worse path. If Job is experiencing some degree of divine wrath here for speaking falsely about God and all this bad thinking, Elihu is warning him. If that's the case, Elihu is warning him not to let the wrath that he's experiencing entice him into scoffing. The Hebrew word for scoffing is sefek. It means to mock or to scorn. This too would be the speech of the wicked, right? What do the wicked do? They mock God. They scorn against God. They, uh, these are the kinds of things that wicked people do. 
The wicked are, in fact, scoffers. They mock and scorn the things of God. They mock and scorn the people of God, right? The Bible is riddled with examples of this, especially in the Psalms. In verse 18a, Elihu is basically saying, Job, don't let the wrath of God, if that's what's happening to you because of the way you've been acting, don't let the wrath of God entice you to scoff at God. This, too, is what the wicked do. This is his warning here in half the verse. Now, in verse 18b, it's a, it's a little difficult to interpret. All right, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. That's baffled a great many biblical scholars and commentators for a, a very, very long time. It's a little bit hard to interpret. In, I'm going to give it a shot. In Elihu's mind, Job had a lot of costly things to repent of. In other words, if, if Job were to repent as the three friends had urged him to do and as Elihu has been urging him to do, if he were to repent he would have to repent of a lot of very costly things, things that he's familiar with, things that he's used to. Now, Elihu thinks that he sees self-righteousness in Job. He thinks that he sees self-centeredness in Job. He thinks that he sees or hears a critical, judgmental spirit in Job. He thinks that he sees and hears pessimism and scoffing in Job, or at least Job is right on the edge of starting to scoff against God. He perceives all of these things present in Job. And he suspects or deduces that it won't be easy for Job to turn away from these comfortable patterns. It won't be easy for him to repent of these, these comfortable patterns and these behavioral characteristics. It won't be easy for him to do that. Those will be costly things that he has to give up to turn away from those things and then to turn to God and trust in Him. Therefore, the great ransom Job must pay is a costly repentance. A turning away from all this familiar, dysfunctional junk to God. Verse 18b, I think Elihu is saying, don't let the cost of your repentance turn you aside and keep you from repenting. And this is one of the hindrances for Christians and, and non-Christians. When they're called to repent, they think about what that will require of them, what is going to be involved. And, and, and repentance is, is different than confession. Confession is acknowledging and confessing your sin. Repentance is abandoning the sin. And I think that sometimes when we hear sermons or, or we're reading in the Word and we're being called to repentance... We're gun-shy on doing that because we realize what's going to be, what the cost is of that. Oh, if I do that, then I can't do this anymore. If I do that, then if I repent, then i got to say goodbye to this. i I got to say goodbye to my furry little friend called sin. Whatever it is, this is the idea of costly repentance. Uh, Elihu is, is not speaking of the initial repentance that comes at the moment of salvation. He's not talking about the gift of repentance that accompanies the gift of faith in regeneration, 2 Timothy 2.25 or Ephesians 2.8. He's not referring to that. It is the repentance of a believer, the repentance we are to exercise when the Holy Spirit reveals sin in our lives. 
If we let a particular sin go, it will eventually form a pattern and, and just start to seem normal in our lives, right? This is what happens with sin in our lives. If we don't kill it, as John Owen said, we must, it just becomes woven into the fabric of our being. It becomes who we are and what we do. And sadly, there's other Christians around us that just grow to accept that. Well, that's just the way Phil is. No Christian should ever say that. And this is what happens. You know, when we have something that, that we kind of normalize by not repenting of it and just allowing it to continue, we say things to ourselves, we rationalize, we justify. We say things like, well, it's just what I do. You know, when, when sin becomes normalized, it becomes part of who we are, and then we start saying things like, well, it's just who I am. And when a believer reaches this level, repentance becomes seemingly impossible because that sin is now so interwoven into their life. It's so normal. It's just what they do all the time. And believe me when I say this, it's probably not something big and vivid that catches everyone's attention. It might just be the ways you use your tongue. People used to always compliment me when I was a, a youth pastor at Big Valley, they would compliment me and say, you know what I like about Pastor Phil? He's very real. But what they were referring to is the fact that Phil says things at times in regular conversation he ought not say. <laughs> you know what I like about Phil? He's very down to earth. Why? Because he uses expletives when he gets upset? Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you, know, you understand what I'm talking about here, right? When you let a sin just become part of who you are, maybe it's in your speech, maybe it's in your thinking, and it just becomes so normalized, there's no longer any conviction concerning it. And the notion and idea of repenting of it is, why would I get rid of that? It's just part of who I am. This is the thinking. Sins that we do not forsake become part of who we are. We normalize them, they become part of who we are. And once that happens, it becomes really, really, really difficult to repent of those things. Why? Because he or she is terrified of losing that sin because they don't know what life would be like without it. Well, I mean, man, if that's a, a quality in me that people perceive that I'm really down to earth because I have loose lips at times, well, I don't want to not appear to be down to earth. I want to be down to earth. I want, to, I want the common man out there to be able to understand me. And I don't want to lose that facet of who I am that grounds me in normalcy that causes me to be an effective communicator. What a crock! See, I almost did it right there. <laughs> Carla, be quiet. I, I mean, seriously. You, 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 this sin, it becomes part of who you are, part of your daily routine, and, 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 and you think, well, I, I don't even know how I could get past that. I don't even know what my life would be like without that in my life. You know, this is... These are what we're describing here, the characteristics of addiction, right? You know, the, the, the person who struggles with alcohol, just I, they can't imagine their life without the booze. The guy who, you know, smokes weed all the time and, you know, it's legal now, so it's okay, you know, right? That guy can't imagine. I have to admit, that was me young, you know, that's why I went to like 99 high schools. But it, you just, I, I don't know what life is like without being stoned. There was a point in my life where I used to say things like, well, I don't want to go to that party. It's a dry party. I don't even know how to have fun unless there's booze there. It's so normal 
Things become so normal for us. The very idea of canceling it out and repenting of it is just like, no, 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 I can't get rid of that. We become terrified of losing these things. We can't imagine what, what you know, I, I don't even know how I would function without that kind of thing in my life. A saying that I've used in counseling a lot is that people get to the point where they don't understand or perceive how they could function without their dysfunction. This is what happens. And this is essentially what Elihu thinks is happening with Job. Your repentance is going to be, you're going to have to go make a massive withdrawal from your Swiss account because you have a lot of nasty sin to repent of and these patterns in your life, it's going to cost you big time. Repentance is, is costly because that believer will not be merely turning away from a mere sin. They will be eliminating a regular pattern. They will be destroying a routine. They will be killing part of who they've become. You understand how difficult this is now? It's not easy to give up sins that we cherish or know so well. It's not. It's not. We are like Gollum, my precious anger. Huh? Precious anger. Oh, I love to get torqued. I don't know how I would live without anger. I don't know how you live with it. My precious fear. My precious lust. My precious pride. My, my precious self-image. My precious self-righteousness. We are like Gollum. The, here's a rule of thumb. The more precious the sin, the more costly the repentance. Amen? And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, this is why, this is absolutely why confession is very common in the church, but repentance, <laughs> repentance is totally rare. Christians are great at confessing these things and then going right back to them, but actual repentance, killing them and leaving them behind as a, a sin corpse, very rare in the church. Confession, there's no shortage of that, but actual repentance is rare. Very, very rare. And what Elihu is essentially saying to Job is don't let the greatness of your ransom, the cost of your repentance deter you. You need to repent and be restored unto God, no matter what the cost is. This is something you must do. This is what he's saying here. Now, I have a question for you. What sin has a hold on you? Hmm? Is it self-image, which is really just pride? Is it profanity, the use of your tongue? What is it? What sin has a hold on you? How is God challenging you through his word right now? What is it? You know what you do. You know how you think. And guess what? So does God. He knows everything there is to know about you. He knows that, that I have 684,000 hairs on my head. He knows Bruce has four heads on, uh, hair on his head. He, he knows, sorry, Bruce, he knows he knows everything. He knows. He knows everything. He knows all that. He knows the sin. He knows what you're hiding. He knows what you're cherishing. 
He knows your gullum. He knows what's precious to you. And, and I would only encourage you with the word here, don't let the, the, the cost of your ransom, the cost of your repentance deter you from repenting. Right? It's a, it might be a difficult, seemingly impossible thing, but it is a thing that we must do. We must deal with our sins. We must. Christ dealt with them on the cross, paid the penalty for them, and now through His Holy Spirit, He has empowered us to put them to death. And that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. I, I think we should follow Elihu's wise counsel here. We should actually repent, laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely so that we can do what? Run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. What is that? That's Hebrews 12.1. That's what we're supposed to do. It won't kill you to repent of your sin, but your sin will kill you. It will, even if it's light and makes you seem very down to earth. Oh, how wonderful. I can continue to cuss. We realize how stupid that sounds? I don't need to come across as normal or down to earth to people. God has called me to be a righteous man. That's what I need to be. Amen? That's what he's called you to be. He hasn't called me to walk in daily, moment-by-moment moment fear. He hasn't given me a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-control. His calling for us is vastly different than what we perceive it to be at any given moment. We are to literally kill every sin, even the light ones or the ones that we consider light. Although Romans 6.23 says it all causes death, even the light stuff. Let's follow his advice. Verses 19 to 20, he says this to Job, Will you cry for help? Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. This is kind of odd sounding. It is poetry because most of Job is, but it's pretty clear. In verse 19, Elihu reminds Job of his absolute powerlessness. He's saying your continued cries for help are not going to alleviate your distress. You keep crying out to God for deliverance. It's not going to alleviate your distress, nor will the force of your own strength. That's not going to help you. It's not going to help to end your suffering or alleviate any of this travail. None of that's going to happen. Why? Because God is mighty. Going back to that initial verse in this chapter, no one can deliver from God's hand, Isaiah 43, 13. In other words, the suffering that Job is experiencing is not going to end until God is finished teaching Job whatever lessons he wants him to learn. It doesn't matter how much you cry out or how strong you think you are, how righteous you think you are, none of that is going to tilt God's attitude toward you. He is going to do, follow through and do what he's going to do to get you from point A to point B. It's just what he does, and you can't stop it. That's what he's saying here. Another point Elihu was seeking to make is that Job kind of seems to have the order backwards. He thinks Job is crying out for help while clinging to sin, which makes absolutely no 
sense at all. In Elihu's mind, the cry of repentance, right, acknowledging your sin and, and declaring your sin and confessing your sin and vowing to turn and repent of it, that must come before your cry for deliverance or help. You can't get the order backwards. We cannot come to God and cry for deliverance while choosing to cling to sin. We must first acknowledge the sin, confess the sin, commit to repenting of the sin, and then we can cry out for God's forgiveness. Then we can cry out for God's help. Then we can cry out for deliverance. I mean, what sense does it make if you have a bunch of sin in your life and you're crying out to God to deliver you from the suffering that that sin has caused, but you're not willing to cry out the sin and say, forgive this first? Does that make any sense? No, and this is the way that it works. And Elihu has his finger on the pulse of the way it works here. He thinks that Job has all this sin in his life and he just wants to be delivered from the consequence of it. And he's saying, you, you got the order wrong, man. The cart is out here and the horse is back here. You need to flip him, brother. What are you doing? We must not get the cart ahead of the horse. David confessed and repented of his sin before he cries out for cleansing and restoration. Go back and read Psalm 51, verses 3 to 12. He confesses and repents of his sin, acknowledges all that, gives it over to the Lord, confesses, I'm turning away from thee. He states these things before he actually asks for cleansing and forgiveness and help. That's the proper order. The cry of repentance must precede the cry for help, or they must be woven together. This is Elihu's point. He was correct. People are always crying out for deliverance while having no intention of repenting. You want me to repeat that? People are always crying out for deliverance. God, get me out of this situation. God, help me. God, deliver me. I'll never drink again. Help me, help me, help me. Without any intent, without any attitude or desire to actually turn away from the sin that caused that trouble. It happens all the time. And I tell you what, those who do this should expect no help or deliverance from God because he's not going to be fooled. Even if a person gets the order right, the cry of repentance, right, the cry of repentance is, is, is followed by the cries of help. That's the right order. There's actually no guarantee that relief will immediately come because God might not be finished teaching them whatever lessons they need to learn. Even if you get the order right, you know, I'm, I'm repenting of these sins and I need your help and deliverance from maybe the consequence of that or just suffering in general, there's no guarantee that the suffering is going to go away right away because you've confessed and done these things because God could very well still have you in the classroom trying to teach you lessons and needs to carry that suffering through for another couple of months, couple of years, the rest of your life. Who knows? There's no guarantee. The point is, is that the suffering is the classroom. It is school, and, and, and God is, is, is going to have you in it as long as you need to be in it, regardless of what you're doing or saying. Now, I, I want to say this, and I'm, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to be down to earth. I'm not trying to use a word here, cause any kind of anything here. So just listen to me carefully. I don't know if you know anything about the Navy SEALs. I almost became one. Never in a thousand lifetimes could I ever become a Navy SEAL. I'm joking. There's no way. I admire them. That's the elite. That's the baddest of the bad. And they have a mindset and, ex and an expression. 
and it's called Embrace the Suck. I know you're thinking, oh my goodness, he used that word. Hold on. Look, he's down to earth. I like him. Don't think that either. This is not a crude statement. It's not a crude statement. Suck is a colloquial term that means bad. If I say something sucks, I'm saying it's bad. I'm not using it in a perverted way. Now, it has other connotations, and that's why sometimes our ears poke up. This phrase, by them, embrace the suck, it conveys the one lesson that is absolutely vital for any SEAL hopeful to learn, and that is this. Lean into the suffering and get comfortable with being very uncomfortable. That's what it means to embrace. I know the situation sucks. Embrace it. That's the mentality, the idea. It's not a perverted, it's not a dirty word, phrase. And I would simply say that Christians must learn to embrace the suffering because it is God's schoolhouse where he teaches and trains his students to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, we might not be as tough as Navy SEALs, not even on the same spectrum, but we can learn to lean into suffering and get comfortable with being very uncomfortable. We can actually do this. We have some great weapons that can help us either cope or even conquer in these kinds of situations. We have the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16. We have peace that surpasses all understanding. Philippians 4, 7. We have promises that will surely hold and be fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 1, 20. They're all in Christ. We have an unchanging, incorruptible inheritance stowed up for us, right? 1 Peter 1, 4. We have a place being prepared for us in heaven. John 14, 3. We have an eternal weight of glory coming to those who are in Christ, to us, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. These are the things that we think on and focus on and set our sights on and study and, and rehearse and memorize to help get us through these periods of suffering. The Navy SEAL, unless he's a Christian, doesn't have any of these things. I don't know how those guys get through the BUDS training. Being in a 35-degree ocean with the water splashing over you with the wind blowing while holding a log. I only do that by mistake when I try to surf. <laughs> we, we have weaponry and things that are meant to help us get through the difficult situations. What we want to do is we want to end or cancel the suffering. We don't want to learn how to cope with it and to conquer within it. We see ourselves as victims instead of victors. And we let it tear us apart and tear us down. And that's not the intent. In verse 20, Elihu encourages Job to abandon his fatalism. He had some fatalistic thinking. He thought death could alleviate his suffering. Who hasn't thought that? Well, just kill me now and we'll bring it all to an end. Right? Who hasn't thought that? If I just die, then I don't have to deal with this anymore. Well, you're not in Christ, so your real suffering will begin. So stop thinking stupid. That's a fatalistic mindset. It's communicated through the verse here. He longed for the night when people's vanish in their place. That's a metaphor for death. Job was, believe me when I say this, he was not suicidal. He did not think about taking his own life. He simply thought that death would be better than his current situation. That is fatalism. And I think that anyone who's ever been pressed and had to deal with stuff has thought that, even Christians. I tend to think just moving to another state would help. 
instead of just offing myself or dying or going to be with the Lord, you know, it's like, well, I'll just move to Texas. And it's like, I drove through Texas. It's ugly. It's just free, right? I want to go where it's free and pretty. But why am I wanting to go anywhere? My mission field's here. This is all fatalism. Just getting away, putting an end to it. Christians are not supposed to long for death, especially during seasons of calamity, suffering, difficulty. Death might be a welcomed friend because it ushers us into the presence of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Christ. But if we are still here, then God's purposes for us on earth are not yet complete. In other words, we still have work to do. Philippians 1, 21 to 24, where Paul talks about that. It's better to be with Christ, but he's left me here to be a minister to you. And that's the mentality that we should have. Spurgeon once said, we are immortal until our work is done. <laughs> that's an amazing statement. Nothing will take us out before our appointed time. We are, in a sense, invincible. I think Calvin put it that way. We are invincible until our work on earth is done. Instead of being fatalistic and contemplating death, longing to be with the Lord, which I think is healthy at times, but it can become fatalistic. Instead of thinking that way and contemplating these things, we should consider our calling and contribute to the cause of Christ any way we can, even if we find ourselves on a deathbed. If I still have breath and I can open my eyes, I will blink the gospel. I'll do whatever. That's the mentality that we should have. That we, we, just, we just stay on mission even when, you know, even when it, it seems like we can't do mission. How can I do mission if, if, if I can't walk? How can I do mission if I can't talk? Surely there has to. Can you pray still? Yes, you can pray. There has to be a way. That's the right mentality. But so often when suffering comes, what happens? I've been taken out of the game, man. You weren't taken out of the game. You were put in the classroom Learn to play the game a little differently. Amen? Verse 21, take care. Do, oh, this is massive. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. This is a profound, powerful verse. We have been talking about Elihu's correction concerning Job's bad thinking and statements and charges against God for being inactive. In verses 1 to 16, we saw probably at least eight examples of God's ongoing activity. We now see the next example here in verse 21. It's taken a little bit to get to it, but it's here. It is a warning. Elihu tells Job, take care not to turn to iniquity during your affliction. This is huge. This is a, a, a very important Correction here. At the beginning, Job thought and spoke fairly well, right? He spoke with, with tremendous poise and wisdom and, and patience. And, and it just the, the beginning of the book where he's initially talking, yeah, he was complaining, whining about his birth and all these things. I wish I'd never been born. He was saying ridiculous, fatalistic things. But at the same time, he would say statements about God that were just mind-blowing. His corrections to the three friends, it's, it's some of the best you know, apologetics I've ever seen. He, he did fairly well at the beginning, but as the days rolled on, as they rolled by, his heart became soured, 
His spirit became critical, his thinking became bad, and his speech became increasingly hostile toward God. The intense suffering and constant bombardment of the three friends had taken a serious toll on poor Job. That's a fact. And that's why, no matter what he says, we ought to offer up our sympathies and compassion toward a situation like that rather than judgment and some kind of pharisaical, you know, wow, I can't believe how goofy he was. None of us would have endured this situation the way he did. We're a quarter of the Christian that this man was, so don't puff yourself up. But what's happening here is that Elihu is now highly concerned. He thinks that Job is headed down a slippery slope, maybe moments away from plunging headlong into um, you know, some kind of a devastating iniquity that will make his situation worse than it is. That's what he thinks. And if you think about the way we process and the way Elihu was processing here, if a person says questionable things about God, do we not have reason to think that they'll say even worse things about God down the road? Absolutely. And that's his thinking. That's his mindset. He had heard Job say dumb things. And he thinks Job is headed towards some kind of super iniquity, like blasphemy. Like a, a Navy SEAL instructor, Elihu is challenging Job to embrace the, the, the bad, you know, the bad in his circumstances, the things that are very uncomfortable. He's telling him to embrace the bad, learn to deal with the bad, okay, rather than increase in iniquity. That's what he's telling him here. You need to embrace your situation, see it for what it is, don't let it lead you into more sin. That's exactly what he's saying in verse 21. Now just stop and think about us. Let's parallel to us. What sins do we turn to when suffering and calamity come? Anger, right? James chapter 1, verse 20, we get mad at our situation, we get mad at others, we get mad at God don't we? Grumbling, numbers 14, 26 to 30. We complain about our situation. We even declare how much better life was before suffering. The Israelites did this, and God let the entire, an entire generation of grumblers die in the wilderness, wouldn't let, permit them to enter into the promised land, Exodus 16, 2, Joshua 5, 6. Another sin that we turn to when we get squeezed and calamity comes is profanity. Ephesians 4.29, we express our discomfort and frustration through expletives or unwholesome speech. How about gossip and slander? Leviticus 19.16, sometimes when we're pressed in a difficult situation, we'll talk about others' plight and mistakes and things like that to make us feel better about our situation. Right? That's a deflection. Now, I feel pretty bad about what's going on with me, but have you seen Fred? Wow. Yeah, I just told Fred what you said. He's coming to kick your butt. Oh, I shouldn't have said anything about Fred. Gossip, chatter, we just chatter about others, slander. We say things about them that are untrue, that are heart, um, hurtful. And then, of course, blasphemy, Exodus 20, verse 7. Thomas Watson said we... And typically, when we think of blasphemy, we just think of taking the Lord's name in vain, saying things we ought not say, reflecting God. We use His name as a curse word that public does that. You can't even watch a movie today without that in it. It's appalling. But Thomas Watson said this. It's in your bulletin. 
We take the Lord's name in vain when we speak irreverently about God. There's that facet of it. When we confess his name, but our works deny him. When we make empty oaths and promises. And when we murmur against his providence. Whenever we engage in any of those things, even me complaining about the cold wind last night, that's murmuring against his providence. We are, in a sense, blaspheming him, which is sinful. I'm sorry I did that, Lord. These are the sins that we turn to in the midst of suffering. What is Elihu saying? What is his point here? His point is this. Remember, these are the points he's been making. God is not inactive. He is warning his people not to turn to sin during suffering. That's the point. Not to turn to sin during suffering, which I think is very, very easy for us to do. That's the warning. Let's look at the fourth and final P. Elihu's position, verses 22 to 33. We're going to just take those two verses. Uh, we're going to uh, 22 to 33. We're going to take 22 and 23 right now. Behold, he says, this is the next thing he says after these very, very serious warnings about turning to sin in the midst of the suffering. He says, behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way, or who can say, you have done wrong? Stop there. In verse 22, Elihu reinforces the greatness of God over all creation. Ultimately, this is the only, uh, this is the only true strength for any hurting soul in the midst of trials, right? That God is exalted in his power, that God is actually able to deliver Job or us out of any sort of pain that we're in. That's a a huge consolation and, and truth that we need to remember in the midst of any of these things. And this is exactly what Elihu is saying to Job. You have forgotten that God is exalted in his power. We must not forget this when we're going through stuff. But what Elihu is also saying to Job is that your rescue, it's only going to occur when God has applied the lessons that you need to learn. And that's why he says, who is a teacher like him? He's really saying, who can take suffering and calamity and all the bad that's happening to you? Who can take all of that and weave it together for your sanctification and for your good? The God who is mighty can do that. Nobody else can do that. You cannot do that. Fred cannot do that. The elders of RHC cannot do that. Pastor Rick Countryman cannot do that. Nobody can take these things and weave them together for your good and sanctification. Only the mighty God can do it. That's what he's saying. This is what you need to remember, Job. And it really is a question, who is a teacher like him? The obvious answer is no one. No one else can do this. Only God can teach man profound lessons through the tragedies in his life. Verse 23a, Elihu asks, who has prescribed for God his way? The answer again is no one, no one has counseled God about which way he should take. By the way, God, I think you ought to do this. Nobody's ever done that. People have tried it. It doesn't work. Nobody counsels God. God, however, counsels all people. It's in the reverse. So how could Job tell God what to do? Because that's what he's been doing. In verse 23b, Elihu asks, who can say you have done wrong? The answer, again, is an obvious no one. 
No one can charge God with wrongdoing because God can do and say only what is right, always. Therefore, Job should listen to God and learn from Him, not try to instruct the Lord, not make false accusations against the Lord. Elihu's point is simple. God is not inactive. He is exalted in power and teaches through affliction. Verses 24 to 25, remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it, man holds it from afar, or man beholds it from afar. Elihu continues to point Job to the greatness of God, to the mightiness of God. He says, you know, you need to remember to extol his work, which is always perfect, just, and purposeful. He says, men and women, basically he's saying men have sung, but men and women have sung about God's wonderful providence displayed throughout the earth. All mankind has looked on this. All mankind has witnessed this, Elihu affirms, referring to God's absolute supremacy. He says they have all gazed at God's amazing works that are visible throughout all creation. It's so majestic that, that men and women everywhere can even behold it from afar. What is Elihu doing? This is his way of telling Job to stop complaining and start worshiping. Stop complaining about your suffering and start worshiping the Lord. That's what he's saying here. Verse 26, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. How great is God, according to Elihu? His greatness is beyond our understanding. He says, we know him not. Anything that we know and understand about God's greatness is a fraction of how great he actually is. Although Job might know God personally, we know he did, the fullness of God's greatness and divine glory was totally beyond his ability to grasp. The number of his years is insearchable. In other words, the eternality of God, it cannot be understood properly by finite men like us. A finite God is incomprehensible to finite man. His thoughts, his ways, they're higher than ours, much higher, so much so, and so far beyond anything that we could ever conjure, Isaiah 55, 8 to 9. Therefore, we should not question his works, but humbly accept them while trusting that he makes all things work together for our good and for his glory, Romans 8, 28, 2 Corinthians 4, 15. Now, in the remaining seven verses, Elihu gives Job two Final examples of God's ongoing work. We'll read the verses first. We'll read the whole section here, or almost the whole section. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. Verse 31, for by these he judges peoples, he gives food in abundance. Stop there. Elihu tells Job that the greatness and ongoing work of God is demonstrated through nature. He draws up drops of water from the earth, distills it in his mist or clouds, and causes the skies to pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. You know what we call that water that falls down? We call it rain, don't we? Now, listen to this. This is amazing. Job is, they say it's the oldest book in the Bible. 
So they say it was written before any of the others. According to Eusebius, an early church historian, it was written during the time of the patriarchs, which would have been 1900 B.C. to 1700 B.C., long time ago. In verses 27 and 28, Elihu describes the earth's water cycle perfectly, roughly 3,840 years before the birth of modern meteorology. What has he said? He has pointed to evaporation. That is moisture going up. He has pointed out condensation. That is moisture collecting in the sky. And he has pointed out uh, precipitation. That is rain, moisture falling down. This is, this is 3,840 years before we even have modern meteorology. And he's nailing it here in this ancient text. In verse 29, Elihu asks, Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds and thunderings? From a human perspective, the answer is no. But from the divine perspective, the answer is yes. God understands why he spreads the clouds the way that he does. He understands why he shakes the earth with thunder. The clouds are his, uh, in Hebrew it's sukkah, sukkah, his pavilion, his booth, his cottage, his tabernacle. I love how the ICB, that's the children's translation, I love how it puts it. No one understands how God spreads out the clouds. No one understands how he thunders from where he lives. His pavilion, his tabernacle, right? He is in the third heaven. I love that translation. It's so wonderful. In verse 30, Elihu tells Job that the great and mighty God, he scatters his lightning about, which flashes across the what? The seas and covers or lights up their roots or their depths. In verse 31, Elihu tells Job that, that uh, why God does these things in nature, why he uses or works through the weather. It is by those things or these things that he judges peoples, he gives food in abundance. There's the purpose for why God operates in the weather or in nature. And what he's describing here is a dual justice that's just fascinating. God works through the weather to bring negative justice on the wicked. We see this in 1 Samuel Chapter 2, verse 10a, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And God works through the weather to bring positive justice on the righteous. We see this in Leviticus 26, verse 4. I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Here's the point, and this is absolutely incredible. God works through the same storm to deliver both forms of justice. He does. On one side of town, the storm is very intense with powerful winds, and, and a wicked man's estate is completely destroyed by that storm. But on the other side of town, the same storm is relatively mild with a gentle breeze, and a righteous man's are watered and nourished by the same storm God issues justice against the wicked and justice for the righteous in the same exact storm. That's amazing. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, Christopher Ashe's commentary is really stellar. He wrote, this is a double-edged purpose. A storm can cause terrible damage, as it had with Job in chapter 1, verse 16 and verse 19, but the resulting rainfall can also lead to the fertilization and growth of crops. The same action of God, the same storm, brings judgment for some and blessing for others. 
Just as the same affliction brings blessing to the righteous and judgment for the ungodly in heart. Job 36, 8 to 15. He says this, The fact that we cannot understand how God does it does not mean that we can accuse God of injustice or incompetence in his government of the world. That is a phenomenal, phenomenal commentary. And you're thinking, well, what is the point here? What is Elihu's point? It's very, very simple. Remember, he's shooting down Job's idea of God sitting on his sovereign hands doing nothing. Here's the point. God is not inactive. He is working through nature and the weather to judge and to bless. This truth is brilliantly, brilliantly illustrated in in 1 Samuel 2, 10a, which we read a minute ago. Now let's move to our last verses, verses 32 to 33. Continuing just to try to capture the majesty and, and, and awesomeness and might of God in his functions through weather and nature and these things. He continues, he says, he covers God, covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. It's crashing declares his presence the cattle also declare that he rises. What an interesting statement. And I think what Elihu is doing is he's kind of painting a terrifying picture for Job. Not to terrify him, but just to, just to show the awesomeness and power of God. He describes the great and mighty God covering or filling his sovereign hands with lightning bolts, literally, and commanding that these lightning bolts hit specific targets on the earth. These are like laser-guided bombs coming from the hand of God. And he adds, by the way, Job, God never misses. He puts it like this. Each bolt does what? Strikes the mark. Think about that. Think about that. There's an intention behind the lightning bolts. When bolts of lightning come crashing down from the heavens, and you know what lightning is called in the ancient text and in the scripture here? It's called the fire of God or the fire of heaven. That's what lightning is, and that's what he's talking about. When bolts of lightning or the fire of God come crashing down from the heavens, what does Elihu say happens? God declares his presence. I am here. That that thunder and that lightning is an expression. He is notifying the earth. I am here. That's what Elihu is saying. And when the cattle, because this happens in pastures all the time, When the cattle are startled by these terrifying sights and sounds, what do they do? They flee in the opposite direction. And when they they show their fear and terror and run off to find shelter, Elihu says they are, in fact, declaring that God is rising. God is rising in his power. Even the cattle declare this. This is amazing. What is the point? What is the point? God is not inactive. He is using thunder. He is using lightning to make himself known. That's not just a thunderstorm. That is a manifestation of the presence of God. And what do we call God making himself known through nature and through the weather and through thunder and lightning? We call that general revelation. That's the doctrinal or theological term for that. God revealing himself through nature. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 16 illustrates this perfectly. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 say it just as as clearly as can be. Closing. Suffering 
Suffering can distort our view of reality and cause us to descend into despair and hopelessness. It can. We see it with Job. If it can happen to somebody like him, it can certainly happen to us. The suffering saint must remember that the, the best is yet to come because God will enthrone the righteous, exalting them forever. This is a point that Elihu made in the same chapter in verse 7. And whatever it is that you're going through, at some point it will come to an end and you will be glorified. This is a, a great consolation and encouragement to us. We must, or when suffering happens to us, we must look to God and remember that God uses it to sanctify His people. We must remember that He will, in His timing, lift up the trampled and restore in greater abundance what was lost during the suffering, either in this life or in the life to come. That's another huge consolation for us. Therefore, we must learn to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand so that He may lift us up at the time that He has determined, 1 Peter 5, 6. If we are undergoing great suffering, we should be of good cheer because God will use it for our good. He will exalt us in due time, and of course He's going to use it for His glory. Now, the fact is, if we are outside of Christ, if we're not believers, we haven't repented of our sin and put our trust in Christ, if, if we're not trusting in Jesus and in His finished work, suffering is not meant to sanctify but to sound the alarm. It shouts something is wrong in our life. It shouts something is wrong in, in, this, in our life and in this world. And sin is the culprit. Sin brought suffering and death into this world through Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.17, Romans 5.12. And the only remedy for sin is the Savior, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life died a horrific bloody death, was buried, rose from the grave on the third day to save us from the penalty of sin, to save us from the power of sin, and to save us from the presence of sin in the future when we either go to be with Him or He comes to be with us. Now being cleansed and forgiven of our sins through Jesus Christ might, however, not make our suffering go away. In fact, it could increase it through persecution. So to preach a gospel that promises no suffering is a false gospel. That comes from the pit of hell. It's a lie. The thing that separates the saint from the sinner, right? The believer from the unbeliever. The thing that separates the saint from the sinner isn't the absence of suffering. It is what the saint has in the midst of his or her suffering. That's what separates us. It's what we possess, what we have in enduring suffering. That's the difference. We have Christ. We have forgiveness. We have righteousness. We have justification. We have adoption. We have hope. We have joy. We have peace. We have purpose. We have an identity in Christ. We have the church. We have promises. We have heaven. We have inheritance. We have resurrection. We have glory. We have assurance. We have so much, so much that the, the unregenerate sinner who has not repented and believed, we have far more than that person has. The sinner has himself. Whoopity-doo. The sinner has 
his or her suffering, great. The sinner may or may not have a, a, a few people around them, great. One thing that they're clinging to is the hope that they will soon have a day without suffering. That's all they have. But the fact of the matter is, is that, that that day of no suffering may or may not come. And even if it comes, there will be another day where suffering returns. Because we live in a fallen, sinful world. Aging, getting older, having surgeries, having your organs not perform the way they're supposed to, feeling bad, lack of energy, all the things that we issue are all the result of sin in our lives and sin in the world. The sinner doesn't have any of these things. He's just got himself and his suffering, maybe a few people and what he owns and maybe the hope that stuff will go away and he'll have some time without pain, but there's no guarantee. And in the end, he will die in his sins and go to a place of eternal suffering. The suffering that that person that unrepentant sinner experienced in this life will seem like heaven compared to what they experience in judgment and hell. It's terrifying. Look, God is not inactive. God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. He saves now, today, right now. Repent and trust in Christ right now. Why? Not to escape suffering. That's not why we repent and trust in Christ. Not to escape suffering, but to escape the penalty, power, and presence of sin. To escape the justice and wrath of a righteous and holy God. To escape judgment and eternal suffering in hell. To escape a life that is devoid of all of the precious, priceless blessings that are in Christ alone. 